into the word. Turn your attention to Acts chapter 17. Last week, where we left off, Paul was in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him. Uh, you can see uh, there's a, a map that we've been looking at. You can kind of see where he's, uh, where he's been. Last week we saw he was in Thessalonica and Berea, but he was run out of town in Berea, so some of the Berean Christians helped Paul get safely to Athens. Uh, but Silas and Timothy, who were traveling with him, stayed back in Berea. And so now Paul is waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas to come and catch up with him. That is where we pick up the story today. And so if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? We're going to read Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man 
whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's an old poem you may have heard of called Blind Men and an Elephant. It originated in India, and it tells uh, the story of these six blind men who encounter an elephant. But of course, they can't see the elephant, and so uh, they're just left with trying to feel what this is to try and figure out what is an elephant like. The first man felt the broad side of the elephant, and he said, oh, an elephant is like a wall. The second man felt the the tusk, sharp tusk, and he said, oh, well, an elephant is like a spear. The third man felt the wiggly trunk, and he said, oh, an elephant is like a snake. The fourth blind man uh, felt the sturdy leg and and felt, oh, oh, an elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man uh, felt the flat ear, and he said, oh, an elephant is like a fan. And the sixth blind man uh, grabbed the the tail and, and said, oh, an elephant is like a rope. Well, the the story is told, and it's meant to be a parable about how ignorant and arrogant all of the religions of the world are. You know, all these religious people, different religions of the world, dispute about what the divine is really like. And they don't really know what they're talking about. You know, everyone's maybe a little bit right, a little bit wrong. But they're really all just making claims about something that they've never seen. But you know what would really change the story? If just one guy came along who had the ability to see. Well, then he could come to these six blind men and he'd say, oh, no, 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 let me tell you what an elephant is actually like. Because I have the ability to see that you don't have. I can tell you what an elephant is actually like. Well, the city of Athens was full of blind men. And they were all just trying to feel around and figure out what the divine was like. They disputed together about what the divine was like. But none of them really knew what they were talking about. They might have had some semi-right ideas, but they had a whole lot of wrong ideas. And ultimately, they are all just making claims about something that they had never seen. And then along came the Apostle Paul. A man who once had scales on his eyes. But the resurrected Lord Jesus gave him the ability to see him for who he really was. Paul comes to Athens and he is able to look at these blind men and tell them what God is really like. 
in our passage today, we get to watch Paul make known the one true and living God. And as we do, this text will invite us to turn to the one true living God. Let's see how this one true living God reveals himself on the pages of Scripture. As the text begins, the first thing we see is Paul's burden for the city of Athens. Paul's waiting there in Athens for Silas and Timothy, and he decides to do some sightseeing. Athens uh, was a city that was filled with art and architecture that, that was the envy of the world. Uh, some impressive buildings and sculptures that are just awe-inspiring. I mean, to this day, Athens is a tourist destination. You can go and, and see, for instance, the, the Parthenon uh, at the, the highest point in the city, this impressive stone structure with its columns. But Paul's little tour of Athens did not make him go ooh and ah. It made him angry. Look at verse 16. Paul was provoked within his spirit. Why? Because he saw that the city was full of idols. This impressive artwork, these sculptures were pictures of the Greek gods and goddesses. Uh, these structures like the Parthenon were temples for the worship of false gods. These unbelievable human achievements were created by human hearts that worshipped false gods. And so Paul was provoked. He was provoked to anger. Like the kind of way that God was provoked in Deuteronomy 9.8 at the golden calf in the wilderness. Uh, Paul was righteously jealous for the glory of the one true and living God. And that being provoked in his spirit led him to action. It led Paul to speak to the people. Look at verse 17. So he was provoked, so he reasoned. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Uh, he went to the Jews and the, the Greeks who worshipped the God of Israel. He went to the marketplace and talked to anyone who would listen to him. Paul could not sit still. He could not stay silent. He could not stay indifferent. Paul had to go after the glory of God. He had to tell people about Jesus. Let me pause here and ask, is your spirit provoked by the idols in our city? Now, our idols look a little different than theirs, but if you drive around Stephenville, you'll find it's actually not that different from Athens. The idols and temples and altars in our city are in the realm of Hobbies and pastimes. Sports and schools. Politics and patriotism. Personal rights and preferences. False depictions of Jesus and Christianity. Now, 
as I list those, is your spirit provoked within you? If it is, is it because you're jealous for the glory of God? Or is it because you're angry at God for threatening one of your idols? As I prepared this sermon, it's an opportunity for the Lord to put his finger on the idols of my heart. And what I discovered for myself and the things that are good that I turn into God's My problem isn't that I don't see that they're idols for me and that I worship them. My problem is that I'm indifferent to them sometimes. May we not be indifferent to the idols of our city. May we see the idols, the things that people worship in our city that are not God, and may it drive us to have a passion for the glory of the one true God. May we have a burden in our hearts for those who worship false gods. May we not be able to sit still. May we not be able to stay silent. May we go after the glory of God like Paul did. May we have a drive in us and be provoked to tell people about Jesus as we see the false worship around us. May we be burdened for our city like Paul was burdened for the city of Athens. Paul was burdened and he talked to anyone that would listen to him. And that led to what we see next and that's Paul's invitation to the Areopagus. Some of those that Paul talked to were philosophers. There was two different groups represented uh, represented there of the philosophers that were told about. Uh, two of the major schools of philosophy in ancient Greece. Uh, the first group was called the Epicureans, and the second was called the Stoics. There's some things you need to know about them that are going to be relevant as we continue. The Epicureans, uh, they viewed the gods as distant, unconcerned with the world. Uh, they were primarily concerned with the material, things that you can perceive with the five senses. And the Epicureans highly valued mental peace and tranquility. The kind of peace that would be disrupted, say, by what happens to us after we die. Is there a judgment? The Stoics uh, were, were pantheists. So that means that they didn't see a distinction between creator and creation, God and nature, uh, they saw that the divine was in all things, in people and in objects and in animals. Um, and, and they understood that everything you needed to know about the divine could be found if you would just tune into nature. Uh, and that if you could just get in line with what nature reveals about the divine and live according to it, that's the pathway to the good life. Uh, the Stoics also highly valued independence And self-sufficiency. And these Epicureans and Stoics that heard Paul were suspicious of him. Uh, In verse 18, look at what they say. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Uh, That word babbler, uh, it it comes with this picture of a, a chicken 
pecking around at seed on the ground. It's the person who, who picks up these little snippets of ideas, uh, new things that are kind of shiny and cool, and starts talking about them before they really know anything about it. Uh, it's the person who read a few posts on Facebook and now they think they're an expert. That's a babbler. Then others in verse 18 say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, now, that charge of preaching foreign divinities was actually pretty serious. Uh, Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher, was actually executed, and one of the charges against him was that he was a preacher of foreign divinities. So, th- them's fighting words. And also, whenever they hear the resurrection, the Greeks did not believe in a bodily resurrection. So, these were ideas uh, that were really um, not easy pills to swallow for a Greek audience. And so they needed to know more about this new strange teaching. So they take Paul to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a hill uh, dedicated to the the, the god of war who was called uh, Ares or Mars. And at that hill, a council of the Areopagus would meet. And that council would resolve disputes and even try crimes related to the realms of religion, morality, education. And Paul wasn't technically arrested or on trial, but this was a tense situation as he was speaking before the council of the Areopagus and others who were listening. And then I love that Luke just kind of interjects a little comment in verse 21. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Well, the statement's funny for a couple of reasons, because what Luke lets us in on is The Athenians were really the ones who were the babblers. They were the ones who were constantly pecking around at new ideas and presenting them. But not only that, here's this city that prided themselves in being tolerant. And they're intolerant of this new idea of Christianity. I wonder what it would be like to live in a society like that. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the point being, this all gave... Paul an opportunity to speak to the Gentiles who were gathered there. Not only the council of the Areopagus, but others who were in his hearing. So then in verse 22, we come to Paul's speech at the Areopagus. I love this passage of scripture. Uh, This speech is absolutely brilliant. Uh, It's brilliant for a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, Paul uses just airtight logic. Uh, He makes these sound arguments that any reasonable person would have to agree with. Uh, Second, throughout this speech, Paul tailors his message to his audience, both in its structure and its substance. In terms of the structure of his speech, Paul structured his sermon after the conventions of Greek rhetoric. So he was already presenting them and communicating material to them in a way that was more uh, easy for them to receive. But not just in the structure, but also in its substance. Throughout, Paul uh, pulls out these ideas that would have been familiar to the Greek culture, even quoting uh, some of their poets, and he uses them and he takes them and he kind of spins them and makes them bridges to the gospel. 
But even as he's tailoring to his audience, this speech is thoroughly biblical. Paul never quotes scripture, but every word of this speech is a reflection of Old Testament scripture. Even as he's quoting the Greeks, he never does so in a way that affirms their worldview. He always takes it and puts a little spin on it in order to uh, not only uh, use it to communicate biblical truth, but actually to use their own words against them and show that they were um, uh, wrong in their ideas. He, He uses their own ideas to confront their worldview and to deconstruct their false ideas that they had about the divine. And then the last thing to be said about the fact that Paul's speech was thoroughly biblical, is that he never loses sight of their greatest need. Now, what Paul realized is that what their greatest need was was not that they would understand that they were wrong and he was right. Their greatest need wasn't airtight logic in order to make a point that they could just rationally come to. Their greatest need was that they needed to realize that they were sinners against a holy God who had sent his son and raised him from the dead so that all who trust in him can be saved from the wrath to come. They had a spiritual problem, not a rational problem. And so even as Paul gives arguments and logic and tailors things in a way that fits, he never loses sight of what biblically is their greatest need. And in so doing, Paul gives us a clinic on how to be clear and contextual without compromising the truth. Of scripture. So let's dig into this speech. Paul begins by addressing his audience in verses 22 and 23. Uh, He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So, So Paul addresses them as very religious. And, and probably we should understand Paul to have a double meaning there uh, because it was customary for a Greek speech, an oration, to begin by complimenting the audience. And that's probably how the Greeks would have received it. But that word religious can also mean superstitious, have kind of a negative connotation. And as you see what Paul then goes on to say about them, no doubt that's what Paul had thought of them when he said the word religious, that they were superstitious. They were so superstitious, in fact, that not only did they build an altar to every god they could think of, they built an extra altar to an unknown god just to cover their bases. That's how superstitious they were. But nevertheless, they, they, I'm sure, heard this as a, a compliment of their religiosity. Well, this leads him to his main point. The main thing he wants to get across at the end of verse 23. What, therefore, you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you. Paul came to make known the unknown God. Now, it's important that we recognize Paul is not saying that they were actually worshiping the one true living God and they just didn't know it. It's not what Paul is saying. The point he's getting at is that altar to the unknown God revealed they were missing something. So Paul made known to them the God that they did not know. Most of his speech consists of a series of arguments to make known the one true and living God. 
a series of arguments to demonstrate that the one true and living God is superior to the idols of this Greek culture. Paul reveals this one true and living God in a number of ways. First, he shows that he is the uncontainable creator. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So contrary to the Stoics, who thought God is in everything, they needed to hear that God is distinct from his creation. There is creator and there is creation, distinct from one another. And this God who made everything in it, if he's able to make all things, he can't be contained by a little box made by human hands. The, the Parthenon might be impressive, but it is way too puny to contain the eternal, infinite God. A God that you can contain is not a God worth worshiping. Next, Paul reveals God as the self-sufficient provider in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything from us. Anything that we could give to God, we only have because it came from him. Contrary to the Stoics who valued independence and self-sufficiency, what Paul reveals is actually we are totally dependent on God for everything. And he alone is self-sufficient. A God who needs something from you is a God who will never satisfy you. Third, Paul reveals the one true and living God to be the origin, the supervisor, and the goal of humanity. Look at this in verses 26 and 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So God is the origin of humanity. He is the supervisor of humanity. He's the goal of humanity. And the Epicureans who were only concerned about the material, the things you can perceive with your five senses, needed to understand that apart from the material, there is a spiritual God from whom came all things, over whom he supervises, or uh, yeah, the, the God is over all things, and he is the one that all of us material humans are meant to point to and meant to go to. He is the origin of humanity. He's the one who made all from one man. But he didn't just start things off and let it go. He's the supervisor of humanity. He's the one who superintends where we go, where we live. How long we live there are allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling places. But he's not just the origin of humanity. He's not just the supervisor of humanity. He's the goal of humanity. God made us 
to seek him and find him. God, our creator, is the great treasure that every human heart longs for. As St. Augustine said, we are restless until we find a rest in him. Even though God made us that way, though, with a desire for him to seek and find him, because of our sin, we take our God-given appetite for God and we seek to satisfy it in anything but God. So much so that the Paul who says God made us to seek God and find him is also the Paul who will say in Romans 3.11, no one seeks for God. We want God, but we don't want God. At best, we're just feeling our way toward him like blind, man try, blind men trying to figure out what an elephant is like. And the sad thing is, we're so far, even though he is actually near. And that leads us to the fourth way that Paul reveals who this God is. He's the sustainer of humanity. Look at verse 27 again. They should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is near. Now, remember the Epicureans, they thought God was distant, unconcerned. And contrary to what they taught, Paul is saying, no, 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 God is near. How near is God? As near as your last breath as near as the blood coursing through your veins. We are dependent upon God for every bit of our physical existence. That's how near God has to be for us to even be alive. And so here's what we need to understand from that. If we are separated from God, it's not because he's far off. It's because our sin has separated us from God. Our sin keeps us from him. You might notice that that phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, uh, in your Bible it's probably in quotes, and that's because uh, it's a quote. It's not a quote from scripture. Uh, it's a quote that would have been very familiar in Greek thought. It's an idea that was common. And Paul takes that and he uses that, again, as a bridge to the truth about God. Uh, he builds common ground. Um, you know, at the synagogue, Paul was able to build common ground with Jews by quoting scripture. If he had quoted scripture here, uh, it wouldn't have meant anything to this crowd. But because um, he was quoting these phrases that were well known from their uh, philosophies and things like that, he was able to have that same common ground and then use that to get to the one true and living God. Paul continues, uh, and he describes the one true and living God one last way as the unmade maker. Look at verse 28 again. Uh, he quotes another one of their prophets. He says, or another one of their poets, rather. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
So Paul starts with this quote from one of their poets, for we are indeed his offspring. And in its original context, uh, that phrase had nothing to do with the one true and living God, but Paul takes it and he spins it in order to show that even their own ideas prove their other ideas wrong. It's true that we all have our source in God, that he is the creator. We are God's offspring in that sense. And if God produced us, then our product can't possibly be God. A God made in your image, a God that came from your imagination, is not a God worth worshiping. Well, Paul has made known this one true and living God, the uncontainable creator, the self-sufficient provider, uh, the origin of humanity, the supervisor of humanity, the goal of humanity, the sustainer of humanity, the unmade maker. And in light of all this, he comes in verse 30 to his call to action. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul's audience, these Greek people, they were ignorant. Uh, and they admitted it. They made an altar to the unknown God. They were ignorant of who this God was. So they were ignorant, and God was patient. He was patient with them. Uh, the fact that they still had life in their being was a sign of God's kindness to them. He was patient, but Paul says, now is the time to repent. God has been patient with you. He has endured your idolatry. He has endured your ignorance. But now, because of what you know, now is the time to repent. But it wasn't just that group of Greeks at the Areopagus that day that needed to repent. He says, it's time for all people everywhere to repent. Why? Well, look at verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The God who created all things, the God who created man, the God who created the heavens and the earth is a God to whom we are accountable. And that God has fixed a day on which he will hold us accountable. A judgment day. He has set that day and the clock is ticking, Paul says. So what do we need to do? Repent. To turn away from idolatry. Turn away from these false gods and turn to the one true living God as he has revealed himself. Now remember, the Epicureans... They wanted peace and tranquility. And Paul wanted to disrupt their sense of peace. If you do not know the one true and living God, the last thing you should feel is peace. You should be restless if you don't know the one true and living God. As Paul 
wraps up this speech in this very last line. He does something in this last line that's different from everything else that he has done up to this point. Up to this point, primarily what Paul has been arguing is truths uh, that were based on natural revelation. How God has revealed himself, how we can use logic to discern things. He, he changes strategies at the very end here, though, and he moves from natural revelation, things that can be known through nature and logic and science, to special revelation. Things that can only be known if someone tells you about them. Paul was telling them there is something that you need to know that you cannot know by just sitting around and thinking. There is something that you can only hear through a preacher. Now again, contrary to the Stoics who believed all they needed to do was just study nature and learn about the divine through that, and that's everything that they needed to know, Paul says, no, there is a message that you need to hear that you cannot hear in nature. You can only hear from a witness to the resurrected Jesus. And that's exactly what they needed to hear, what Paul reveals to them. The man whom God has appointed. Who is that man? Well, it's the man that Paul was talking about at the marketplace. It's Jesus, the one that raised eyebrows and caused them to say, these are strange things. The one who was resurrected. Because that man, Jesus, who was resurrected wasn't just resurrected. He didn't just stop there. It wasn't a Lazarus situation. That man, Jesus, who was resurrected is not only fully man, he's also fully God. And after his resurrection, he was ascended to heaven. He was exalted to the Father's right hand. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth. He was given the keys of death and Hades, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. And all that's left, when we hear that, when we know who this one true God is, what he has determined it would be the judgment day, who he has appointed, this resurrected Jesus, when we hear this, there's only one question that remains. How will we respond to these truths? And that leads us to the last part of this passage, the response to Paul's speech. The response to Paul's speech. There are three responses that we see in this passage. Ridicule, interest, and faith. Look at verse 32. The first one we see is ridicule. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Again, the Greeks believed that there was no such thing as the bodily resurrection. And so this is where they drew the line. They, they might have been with Paul when he was just making arguments about like, yeah, God's the creator. You can't be, cre-, you know, okay, I follow that. Yeah, God, you know, it can't be from my imagination. In him we live and move. Okay, yeah, he offspring, yeah, okay. But resurrection, whoa, that's where I draw the line. They had made up their minds. There's no such thing as the bodily resurrection. And they were unwilling to change their mind. They thought that that was ridiculous. So they ridiculed this idea of the resurrection. Well, maybe this reflects your heart toward the one true and living God. You can accept most of what Christianity teaches. But 
there's something that just goes too far for you, that just crosses the line into the ridiculous. Bodily resurrection, that's where I draw the line. That's, that's ridiculous. God sovereignly chooses some people to be saved. Sorry, that's where I draw the line. Homosexuals and drunkards won't inherit the kingdom of God? Whoa, too far. That's where I draw the line. That's ridiculous. Turn the other cheek? That's ridiculous. Give up my rights to serve other people? That's ridiculous. Deny yourself and follow Jesus? That's ridiculous. If there's a truth of Scripture a part of who God is, how he has revealed himself, that in your heart you ridicule, that in your heart is, is too far, that is ridiculous to you, you need to hear from this passage that God has fixed a day on which he will judge all people. And on that day, we will not be judged according to my personal standard of right and wrong or true and not true. On that day, as you're judged, it's not going to be your idol on the throne making a verdict. It's not going to be your idea of God who makes a verdict. On that day, the approval of your tribe isn't going to matter. Whether or not you were true to yourself isn't going to matter. There is one opinion that, that, that will matter on that day, and it is the opinion of the one true and living God. There's a better way to respond. In fact, the next response is better than ridicule. The next response is interest. Look at verse 32 again. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So there's this other group that they may or may not have agreed with what Paul said, but they were at least open to hearing what he had to say. Uh, so they, they didn't repent, they didn't believe, but they wanted to hear more. Well, maybe, maybe this is you today. You hear the truth, and you don't reject it. You want to hear more. You don't reject it, but you're not all in on Jesus. And you know what? That's an okay place to be for a little while. But just staying interested while coming short of faith is not a place that you want to stay very long. I hope that you hear in Paul this sense of urgency. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Sadly, many people never move beyond. We will hear you again about this. Is that you? Yeah, I'll hear again. I'll hear again. I'll hear again. And you just hear again and again and again for years. But you never give your life to Jesus. You never move beyond interest. You're interested. You're not 
rejecting, you're not opposing, but you've come short of letting Jesus actually transform your life. Well, it's better than ridicule, but let me offer you an even better way. Faith. Look at verses 33 and 34. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There were some who didn't ridicule. There were some who wanted to hear more, and once they heard more, then they believed. They joined Paul. They went beyond interest, and they believed. They went all in on Jesus. And so what was it that they believed? What was it that they trusted in? Well, first we have to understand that this resurrected Jesus that Paul proclaimed, the reason why the resurrected Jesus is worth trusting in is because the Jesus who was resurrected is the Jesus who first died. Jesus, the eternal God, the creator of all, created us to seek him, to find him, to know him, yet we rejected him. And for that, we deserve for God to be provoked with us. We deserve for God to be angry with us and to pour his wrath in judgment upon us. But Jesus, the creator of all humanity, came near. He took on human flesh the maker of men became a man. And he took the judgment that we deserve to receive from him on the final day, on that one day at Calvary. He took the wrath and the anger that our idol worship, our worship of false gods deserves, and he took it on himself and died as a substitute for sinners so that those who deserve for the judge to declare us guilty could be declared innocent. Today, the resurrected Jesus is offering you salvation. You can be saved from the judgment that we all deserve. You can know the one true and living God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. As Paul is speaking to Thessalonians, he's speaking to people who have heard about the one true and living God and have placed their faith in the one true and living God. And he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 9, and in the middle of the verse, he tells them that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
I hope that what you see in this verse is that what stands between a person who will receive the judgment of God and a person who will be saved from the wrath to come. What stands between those two realities is turning to Jesus. He says you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. So turn away from things that cannot give you life and turn to Jesus who was raised from the dead. Turn from sin, turn from worshiping idols, turn from the false things that aren't worthy of our time and our attention and turn to the one who can deliver us from the wrath of God. The wrath that is to come. Place your faith in this Jesus. Don't mock. And don't just stop at interest. At hearing again and again and again and again. Place your faith in this Jesus. Go all in on the one true and living God. Who made you to know him, to seek him, to find him, to be satisfied in him for all of eternity. You don't have to keep on feeling around in the dark and trying to figure out who this God really is. He has revealed himself to us. So turn to the one true and living God who has made himself known most fully in the resurrected Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for making yourself known. And thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. Lord, apart from hearing your gospel, we can know only enough to condemn us. But God, you raised Jesus from the dead and he commissioned messengers to go preach the gospel so that we could know not just who you are, but that you have made a way for us to know you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all in this room understand that there is nothing in this world worth living for besides knowing you. You made us to be restless until we find our rest in you. But Lord, we cannot know you if we are not willing to give up our sin and trust in Jesus. So Lord, put it on the hearts of each one of us to not rest in and of ourselves but instead to rest fully in Jesus who died for us who was raised to new life who can save us from the wrath to come not by anything we would do or anything that we would be but entirely because of what he has done on our behalf Lord I pray that we would all trust in him alone and worship you the one true and living God we love you and praise you. It's in the name of the resurrected Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and respond to the word we've just heard.